0: My name's Cameron, I'm one of the pastors here for a little bit longer. Uh, In just a couple months, we'll be officially launching Door of Hope Northeast. So if you didn't know, March 1st, we're gonna have our first Sunday morning worship service, which is, yeah, it's exciting. Um, Be around a little bit between now and then. Uh, We'll be doing every other week gatherings in the afternoons uh, for January and February as uh, Grace City is still meeting there in the mornings for the next two months. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a bit. Um, but we should just jump in, we should just jump in. I'll, I'll start with this. Um, if you know me very well, you probably know this about me, you may have picked it up through the choice of sermon illustrations I often gravitate to, but I love movies, deeply. Um, I love watching film, I, I love blockbuster stuff, I'll, I'll go see you know, the new Avengers movie or whatever and thoroughly enjoy it. I love the weird art house stuff, too, um, and most things in between. And, um, but nothing, it, like in the age of streaming, this is maybe becoming, hopefully it's, hopefully it's not gonna die out, but I love the movie theater experience, and I just pray that, that Netflix doesn't, doesn't end that for us. Um, I love going to the movie theater. I, I don't even mind paying exorbitant prices for sugar, water, and popcorn. I feel like I've been programmed like Pavlov's dog to need those things every time I walk in there. Um, But there's something about just going into the the darkened room, taking your seat, like sort of the reverent awe that, that hushes over most people when the lights come down, the previews start, except for those people, and if you're one of them, may God have mercy on your soul. People that text or talk on their phones in the movie theater, shame on you. Shame on you. Um, you know, most people, like, yeah, phone's away, you're quiet, you're reverent, and you're just kind of, like, able to just kind of disappear into this thing, hopefully well-made, that's there to inspire you and challenge you and put ideas before you and wow you and all these things. Um, it's kind of the perfect, like, spectator's thing with all the money, all the special effects and charisma and skill that money can buy, like, taking you to a new place. I love it. I love the movie theater experience. I say that to make the exact opposite point that when you come here to the Sunday morning worship gathering, it should be nothing like that. Nothing, nothing like that. Church, the church community is the exact opposite of, of a solemn spectator's experience, at least it should be. Uh, and we, we come to our fifth week of the invitation series and, 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 and the final one and we're gonna focus on the invitation to participation, which kinda has a nice little ring to it. Uh, The invitation to participation. Um, The the idea that that Jesus invites us not to come and spectate, uh, at least least not fundamentally in what's happening here, but to come and participate fully, to give ourselves to one another in a deep and profound way. so that's what we're gonna jump into. Josh had kind of set aside the text for this week, uh, which is what we're gonna go with, which is out of Matthew 20. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 20, verse 20, and that's where we'll be all morning. And for context here, the, the story in Matthew 20 picks up with Jesus having just predicted his death um, again, and he, he's declared that they're gonna make their way toward Jerusalem, uh, and he's even said, hey, I'm gonna die. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised again. And the disciples, I'm sure, were sort of puzzled what he was talking about. like, okay, well, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Sounds great. And so as they're making their way toward the city, uh, this story picks up. And so we'll pick up in verse 20 here. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And we'll just pause there for a second. So we have this scene, the disciples are traveling, and, and the mother of these two sons, uh, James and John, comes up you know, with the traveling party, and she pulls Jesus aside. She says, hey, can we make sure that there's a prominent place? I understand that you're, you're a king of some kind. You're bringing a kingdom of some kind. Certainly, she didn't have all the detail there, but she knew enough to know, like, this is important, it matters, and I want my sons to have a privileged place in this new kingdom, and I almost wonder if these two guys were like, Mom, you're <laughs> embarrassing me regardless, Jesus points out, like you don't exactly know what you're asking, and he talks about the cup that he's about to drink, which presumably is the cup of wrath uh, that's, that's prepared for him, the cup of suffering, the suffering he's gonna have to do on the cross if he's gonna be successful in his mission to rescue mankind from sin and death and everything in between. He says, can you drink my cup? And the guys say back to him, yes, we will drink your cup. And he says, actually, you will drink my cup. And tradition tells us Uh, uh, James was uh, martyred, and John spent out the remainder of his life after being boiled alive in exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, He says, you will drink my cup, James and John, but to sit at my right hand, that's not for me to grant. That's for the Father to grant. And so there's some fascinating Trinitarian stuff right there that we don't have time to get into. And uh, for our purposes, what we need to end on is that last verse, when the ten heard it, they were indignant. Are you kidding me? You guys are asking for the glory? We're standing right here. Come on. So we move on. We move on. Uh, verse 25. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, and it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus uses this this moment of the disciples jockeying for position in his kingdom to to give a lesson about what, okay, so what is greatness in Jesus' kingdom? There's a new administration coming Jesus sitting atop as king of the world. How's power work in this thing? How does greatness work in this thing? Those are the questions at hand. So we start with our first point. We'll highlight verse 25 and first part of 26. He's gonna define greatness in the world. And so he says, you know, so he's, he's pointing out that what he's about to say is obvious to all. It's the recognizable pattern of the world. When you look around the human kingdoms of our day and that word Gentiles is probably, it's, it's a more general term, it can just be translated um, the nations. So the, ru- the rulers of the nations, you know how they operate. You know that they lord their rule over their people and their great ones exercise authority over them. It says in the world, authority tends to be an end in itself that it, it, it's, it grants power, it grants the ability to, how many times do we hear this, to finally be your own boss, to not have to answer to anybody, to be accountable to no one, to be able to impose your own personal will and desire as far as you're able. It was true in their day, that that's typically how rule worked, and frankly, it's true in our day. Look around, people who sit atop the most powerful structures in the world, they, they tend to lord it over those underneath them, and it's this idea of amassing servants who will execute your every will, and Hollywood has this, God knows politics has this, the business world has this, families have this, and maybe saddest of all, the church has this, churches have this. Um, It's not only burdensome, we should point out, it's not only burdensome for the people under the rule, who who are subjected to this, but it's also corrosive to the soul of the rulers themselves. And in this personal letter written in 1887, I'm sure you've heard this quote from from Lord Acton. He wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts. What's the, Absolutely. absolutely. And then the next sentence, great men are almost always bad men. That's what Acton said. I think he's probably right. And there's no need to name names here, but just think of the countless examples of major celebrities who've been, I don't mind using this word, who've been wounded by an overabundance of power, of privilege, of having their every desire satiated, of never being told no, of never being told that an idea isn't necessarily a good one. The human soul always gets crushed by the weight of godhood. That's the word I'm looking for. Human soul always gets crushed by the weight of godhood. Every time. We make ourselves gods, we get crushed under the weight. It's bad news for us, and it's bad news for the people we're meant to be serving and leading. And so with all this in mind, he says, you know how this works, disciples. He says, how's he finished that thought? It shall not be among you. If you're my people, this way, this system, will not be your way and your system. So if that's greatness in the world, now he's gonna talk about point two, greatness in his upside down kingdom. And he says, first of all, verse 26, he says, but whoever would be great among you, so he uses that same word, he called out the great ones earlier, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So his first point is, you want to be great? You want greatness in my administration, in my kingdom, in my way of doing things? You have to become a servant. A servant. Servant is the Greek word diakonos, it simply means to wait tables. Uh, it's, it's one who is, who's, who, who's serving and meeting the needs at the table of other people. Usually in Greek, Greek culture of this day, it wasn't a job for a free person. Uh, but usually for a slave. Um, But in in less formal settings, people could could serve one another in this way as well without being slaves. Um, So this is good news for all you food service people in the room. Uh, Your profession is next to godliness, evidently. He says, yeah, you want to be great? Become a servant. Then he takes it even deeper, verse 27. And whoever would be first among you the the most preeminent one among you must be your slave, Jesus says. Okay, you want to be great? You become a servant. You want to be first? Become a slave. This is an even bolder concept, highlighting the boundedness of the service. And in broader Greek culture, slaves were absolutely the lowest rung of society with basically no authority and rights. Now, they did often have the ability to save money and bought, purchase their own freedom, and things like that, but insofar as they were slaves at the time, they were utterly focused on the agenda of their master. So what's our equivalent today? I mean, of course I know that there's all kinds of modern forms of slavery. I know that there's slavery in our city right now, sexual slavery and otherwise that's, that's under the radar, some of it under the radar. Um, so yes, we have slaves here and around the world today. Yeah, absolutely. But. Um, at, least, at least in America, those things are generally frowned upon, generally illegal, generally dealt with, and have to be hidden from plain and polite society. Um, so let's think of something less, less outright sort of scandalous than actual slavery today. What comes to mind when you think of an, an equivalent of a servant or a slave? Our culture's different, but what comes to your mind? So get an image in your head, I'm not even gonna fill it in for you, but get an image in your head and then imagine Jesus pointing to that person or that group of people and saying, do you want prominence in my kingdom? Look like them. Look like them. I think most of us are probably conditioned at least superficially uh, today with 2,000 years of like Judeo-Christian cultural values sort of being picked up through osmosis, to value what Jesus is saying. Of course, yeah, we wanna respect the downtrodden, and we wanna, you know, you know, we think it's good to be humble and to try to come alongside those who have greater need than us. But this is a scandalous statement, and I think if we can get past the superficial level, there's probably parts of us deep down that are like, if we really let ourselves go here, we find this scary and threatening, intimidating, because according to the standards of our world this is totally backwards this isn't how power is supposed to work this is upside down from everything we've been taught and this is not just a one off idea that you know maybe jesus was like sort of hungry as they were wandering the desert or something and he's in a grumpy mood and he's like ah, and you guys become slaves or something like that this is this is like core to the fabric of Jesus' teaching look at Matthew 18, he has a similar thing here. We'll, we'll put it up on screen. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom? They're always asking this. They always want to know, where's the glory? And calling to him a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of them and said, I say to you, unless you be ter- com- turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This may have been a little weird for that kid, I don't know. Uh, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the idea is the same now he's not talking about slaves and servants he's talking about one of the other most disrespected lowly undervalued people in their culture which was children you you gained nothing from attending to the needs of a child but he says "You you want glory in my kingdom humble yourself like this one that's where it is or the, as, later on, look at Paul's writings in Ephesians 5. This passage has come up a couple of times in our series so far, but I, I love this. We'll highlight a different piece of it. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he's gonna give a bunch of evidence of what, it, what does it look like when people, when a people becomes filled with the Spirit. This isn't exhaustive, but these are some good things to look for. Be filled with the Spirit. One, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, people whose worship and praise overflows in song with one another. Number two, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, thankfulness. You ever think of thankfulness as an evidence of the Spirit's filling? It is. And here's the one we're most interested in right now. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that the Christian community is to be one of mutual submission. This doesn't, it's not, doesn't mean he's eradicating any kind of leadership structure, but it means that whatever the leadership structure, all the people, the leaders and the people all included together are meant to be submitting one another to the needs of the others, to constantly look to the other and say, I'm going to prioritize your good over mine. I'm going to submit myself to what's beneficial to you. out of reverence for Christ. You read through the New Testament, you will see this all over the early church's understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus and what greatness is like in his kingdom. In his kingdom, greatness is found in humility, in servanthood, in slavery, he says, to the other, to the neighbor, to the family member in the family of God. So this means that greatness in the God of the universe's eyes is found in ways totally counterintuitive to our sensibilities. So first I might just notice, we've talked about this before, but it isn't according to our gifts. So sometimes we have this doctrine of spiritual gifts, Uh, and and some of us could be tempted to say, oh, well, you know, the people that are gifted with preaching and teaching or maybe leading worship, whoever's got that big bright light shining on them, you know, that's where the glory is. That's where the greatness is. Those are the ones that Jesus has set aside to be the great ones. And this teaching totally dismantles that, as do others in the New Testament. The proper theology of gifts understands that nobody's earned their gifts. Jesus simply gifts the church how he sees fit. You're gifted in certain ways, you're gifted in certain ways, I'm gifted in certain ways, and we're all called to use them, to exercise them, to build up one another. But he, always, he says, don't let this part of the body despise this part or be jealous of it. They're all necessary, and no one can take credit for the ones that they do have. So, glory is not determined by Our gifts. Number two, it isn't according to our accomplishments either. Jesus isn't saying, you want to be great in my kingdom? You know, go make lots of disciples. See lots of people come to faith. I mean, seeing people come to faith is deeply valuable. It's probably one of the greatest joys of of Christianity is seeing someone, like, come to know the love that God has for them and respond to it in faith, like, with you in conversation and in prayer. Name another accomplishment that's spiritually significant or otherwise. He says, no, not even that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. None of us have the skill necessary to force it to happen. It's only when he chooses to act. And number three, it isn't according to our influence or our reach and even in our day of easily quantifiable influence through things like likes and retweets. No, that's not the key to greatness. Basically, take whatever standard of success you've picked up from the world and throw it out, what Jesus is saying. It is through something absolutely anyone can do with faithful, repentant hearts and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Greatness comes through humbling yourself to become a servant of God and neighbor, to notice what God is up to in the world and to humbly participate in it. That's it. So just a sidebar. This is something we don't, we don't do super often, and it felt like, I don't know, this is the last sermon of 2019 here at Door of Hope on a Sunday morning. We should acknowledge some things. Like It feels appropriate to take a moment to appreciate all the people around Door of Hope that have to come and serve and participate for even the Sunday worship gathering and all the other things that happen to even be possible. Like the majority of what happens around Door of Hope both on Sundays and throughout the week isn't pulled off by the church staff, but by a huge team of people who commit their time, their energy, and their gifts to seeing them happen. And so we're gonna do a couple rounds of this, but just go with me here for a second. I know this is unusual, but first, there's knowledge like there's a whole world of ministry under our feet that's happening right now this moment. There are dozens of volunteers who are giving their time and their energy to like take care of our children and, and to take an interest in discipling them towards faith in Jesus and to help them feel known and loved and cared for and pointed toward him. So that both our kids are growing in in their faith and that we're able to kind of have this like you know focused time of of worship together. Um in a church the size of ours this is it's like a massive undertaking down there. So I just want to ask like I know there's people down there who are not hearing what I'm about to say there we'll just clap for them in spirit. But if you if you're in this room right now and you've served the kids ministry in the last year would you mind just standing up? Let's give them a hand. Thank you. There's some people just standing in the back that are just hogging your glory. They're just standing there. No, I sincerely, on behalf of the staff and elders of this church, I just want to say thank you. Like, it's a thankless job so often. But I want to say, like, my my sons are down there, and you people... You people. (laughs) You're caring for them. You're teaching them about Jesus. You're allowing me to be up here and do this. Thank you. It's beautiful. It's meaningful. That's the only way that Door of Hope Sunday morning happens is through your service. Thank you. Tons of other people who come together each week to make Sunday like a smooth and hospitable experience for us all. Um, they're easy to overlook too, but if, if you're in this room and you serve in you know, the, the general Sunday ministries, communion, coffee, greeting, prayer, safety, media, music, sound, um, if you've done that in the last year, would you stand up? Thank you. This doesn't feel like it does if you're not doing what you do. No, like, I can't just multiply myself and, and do all these things. No one can. You, you are the people that make Door of Hope such a special and hospitable place on Sunday mornings. Thank you. And then, of course, we want to say, like, what happens on Sundays is only a portion of what happens around our church. And tons of people show up to create spaces for people to be known and cared for and prayed for and loved all around the city in much more intimate contexts. And so, if in the last year you have led or hosted a community group, a change group, a Bible study, a book club, or a city outreach opportunity this year, would you stand up? thank you. You help us be the church, all of you. And there's probably things I've missed, and we'll talk more about what if if I don't do any of those things. Does that make me a miserable person excluded from this sermon? No, it does not. We'll get there. But I do want to say, for those of you that serve in these really specific ways, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Jesus, it's easy enough for the God of the universe to say, hey, why don't you guys just humble yourselves and, and be servants and be slaves? Uh, fair enough. Uh, like, what's, what's it cost you? And for our third and final point, we just want to turn to, to King Jesus, our model of this, because he, he doesn't just leave it as a teaching, hey, go and do this. Look what he says in verse 28. Even as, so he says, my, I am your example. Jesus has taken his own medicine. Even as the son of man himself came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, do you want to know what this looks like in fullness? Look at me. He's not a distant God who sits atop all the power although he does sit atop all power, at the right hand of God as we speak. Though he was God incarnate, he doesn't allow that distance to say I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to care, I'm not going to humble myself, he says no, I'm the ultimate exemplar of this, the one with the highest glory taking the lowest position. He's the ultimate embodiment in his earthly ministry of this very principle. And I would just pause there to say, we need to note how utterly unique this claim is in like, the scope of world religions. So I just think it's always valuable to point these things out. Like, There's lots of world religions that have beautiful teachings about valuing the lowly and caring for the poor and, and lifting up the downtrodden. That's not super unique. And there's all kinds of religions that have moral teachings that you know, give a, a moral code for what it looks like to live a righteous or upright life. But as far as I can tell, Christianity is utterly unique in this claim that the God himself, the lawgiver, has actually entered into the story, entered and fully identified with human brokenness and weakness, who's humbled himself to such a radical degree on a mission of love to suffer what we were destined to suffer on our behalf that we might not have to. This claim that Jesus is making about himself is not just pat religious stuff. This is a scandalous claim. It's a unique claim. You just think about that. I love the way that Paul describes the same event in Philippians two, read this with me, five through eight. He says, have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So again, like replicate Christ, replicate the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in that that passage right there, we have this cause, this beautifully cosmic and confusing, we could spend months just trying to unpack this passage. We'll spend about 30 seconds on it, if that's cool with you. Um, But he he brings in like two key points, like the the bookends of Jesus' earthly life. He talks about his birth, the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, where the very God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, begotten by God from eternity past, the one through whom we're told creation was made and is continually sustained and held together because of his great love was born into human flesh as a vulnerable, weak baby. And not just a baby born, but a baby born in particularly humble circumstance. We just celebrated that a few days ago, didn't we? And then think of the end of Jesus' life, which Paul also ties in here, where where the God-man willfully goes to the cross to pay for the sins of the world through his own death. He's tortured and he's mocked and he's executed as a criminal, though he was, in fact, the only perfect human, the only sinless human ever to live. He died in our place, he died to serve us in the deepest possible way, to give us the gift of forgiveness and salvation. And so for the the bookends of Jesus's life, his birth, his incarnation, and his death, burial, and resurrection, we see this principle played out in full. He is humbled himself to serve. And you could look at the stories of his life and ministry as well and see the same pattern there. So I want you to hear this. it's important to know this. There is one way in which we, we are pure spectators and not participants, and that relates to salvation. So we need to note that it is holy Jesus' work of service to us. It is sheer grace by which we're saved, and our righteous behavior, our activity, can add not one drop of meaning or significance to that. That's what the scriptures declare. We are the spectators of Jesus did the work, and we merely trust it to receive it. We say yes. I will receive that for myself. What you have done, we don't add to it. We don't contribute to it. We watch it and receive it. It's important that we get that there first, because if Jesus is our example but not our Savior then this is just another crushing burden to try to live under. If he, didn't say, if he didn't accomplish salvation for us, he says, yeah, be humble like I'm humble. Humble yourself on the cross. Uh, incarnate yourself as a baby. You know, carry out your, like th- all this just becomes this, well, there's a whole list of ways in which I will fail once more. There's no life-giving power to that, but if he is first our savior who has handed us his salvation and empowered us with his spirit, and given us a motivating hope of promise of what he plans to do when he returns, then this becomes not just, oh great Jesus, a crushing example, it becomes a love-stirring, motivating example as we try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as the spirit of God is at work in our own hearts. Once we're secure in the knowledge of him as our gracious savior king, then we can look to him as an example and model of what humanity fully alive really looks like. And by the power of his spirit, we can follow after him in those ways. And I I love the way Josh points points this out, I've heard him say it multiple times, like Jesus' whole life wasn't just marked by acts of service here and there, it was the full identification with the role of servant. It's an identity piece not just showing up to serve on occasion, it's adopting a posture that says, I am here to serve the Lord and those around me, my neighbor. And he invites us to do the same. So, I want to turn really practical for a second. What do we do with all this? Well, there's lots we could say to answer that question. Let's just talk about a couple things. Number one, as I mentioned, Door of Hope Northeast is only on the ramp up, um, there's need. Um, right now, we've got around 100 adults that are committed to the new church, which is such a blessing. It's like so encouraging. Um, but it, so it's a pretty big church, it turns out, uh, to start, which is awesome. With that comes a lot of need. There's need for people to come and exercise their gifts and their time and their energy to help what happens both on Sundays and then around the city throughout the weeks to happen as well. And so there's an invitation, we need you. If you're interested, if you're one of those people that's like, ah, that sounded interesting, and you wanna process that more, shoot me an email, come to our core group gatherings, um, the uh, updated info will be on the website. Um, we, we need people, we need people to come and serve um, to make that church happen in the same way you do here. And then we've said this before, but I would just acknowledge that, so if a 100 folks are leaving to go there, that's a, that's a lot to backfill here, and a lot of those people are people that have been serving faithfully here at Southeast, and so there's a fresh call, like, to come in and fill those gaps, to, to come participate in what God is doing here at Door Hope Southeast, to join in. But I also want to acknowledge, I mentioned this earlier, that Serving in these formal capacities, greeting team, coffee team, leading community group, whatever else, that, that, that is not the end all be all of this passage. It would be really silly if any of you walked out of here going, okay, he's called us to live the lives of service and, and slavery to the common good of our neighbors, and that just means signing up for coffee team. Like, it's clearly not the full extent of that. It can be a piece of it. I just want to acknowledge if any of you are in this room and you're like, well, gosh, like, it just doesn't work for me. Maybe you've new babies or your travel schedule or what, I, I, there's a million reasons why it just isn't feasible for you to kind of step into one of these formal roles. I just wanna, I want you to hear very clearly like, that's okay. You have not failed Jesus on this account. The call for all of us is to view participation and service to one another as core to what it means to belong to Jesus and his church and our church specifically at Door of Hope. The call is to not let Sundays or Wednesday community group or whatever else become a spectator sport where you show up and watch the show and then sneak out so you don't have to have awkward conversation with somebody. It's a call to be genuinely curious every time you show up to understand that what we are here for, all, everyone in this room that knows the Lord We are family who are gonna be in relationship into eternity future in the kingdom. Yeah, it's awesome. And this is an opportunity every time we gather, not just to come and watch, but to come and know one another, to come come early, I haven't met you before, hey, let's meet, what's your story? Give me me a bit about your life, hang around after, go get lunch with somebody, hang out, like start forming a relationship, be curious about the people that are around you and get to know what are their needs? Is there some way I could come alongside and meet that need and serve you? Can I humble myself, submit myself to you for your good as an expression of Jesus' love toward you? And I don't think that ends or terminates here inside the walls of the church, of course, or, or amongst Christians. I think when you're at work or with your friends or wherever, people who don't know the Lord, It's the same thing. It's being curious and interested. What are your hopes? What are your fears? What are your dreams? What are your needs? Is there some way I can come alongside you? Some way I can serve you? Some way I can tangibly articulate the love of Jesus? And ultimately, some way I can verbally articulate the way in which Jesus and his kingdom promises are the final and ultimate fulfillment of every one of your deepest longings. This is good news for you and they'll trust that it's good because you've been good toward them. This is a much bigger picture than serving on coffee team, but by all means, if you like making coffee, we need you on coffee team. We really do, and that's meaningful. So that's the call. It's the call to our brothers and sisters here at Door of Hope, our brothers and sisters in the church around Portland, around the world, and to those who are not yet our brothers and sisters out in the world who desperately need to know that Jesus is Lord. He's king, he's good, and He served them in the most fundamental way, the most profound way he possibly could in accomplishing salvation and forgiveness and life for them if they'll only trust. Does that sound like a pretty good program for 2020? Let's be those kinds of people participating. Because we are secure in what Jesus has done for us, we are equipped and empowered to go and take that to one another and to the world. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray.